Father, thank you so much. You are an awesome God, and we really just don't have the words to describe just how great you are, but you are a great God, and we thank you so much. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and we'll be glad in it. We thank you, God, that you just woke us all up this morning and brought us here. We thank you that you're a provider. We thank you that you don't leave us and you don't forget about us, but you take care of all the things that concern us. And God, even as we come before you today, we just, we just lay ourselves out before you and, and honor you and worship you because you are the one and the only true and living God. And thank you for speaking your word to us and through us, Lord God. And we thank you that you do watch over your word to perform it. You don't just speak just because, but you speak with a purpose. And we thank you for your purpose and your words today. And we just pray that your word will always have free course here. Illuminate our hearts and our minds. Prepare us to hear what you have for us today and receive all that you have and have already given for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're starting this. We started a series last week called Before Calvary. And this one's a little bit different because we did one back around Christmas time called Before Bethlehem. And and now we're looking at Before Calvary. And this is a series that we're doing. It's a three-week series. And we started last week. And it's a series that we're carrying through our resurrection season. Um, and we're looking at the really strange and shocking heavy emphasis on sacrifice, especially sacrifice in the Old Testament where animal sacrifice was required of God and to God alone. And we talked a little bit about that in our group <laughs> this morning. And so last week we talked about how, you know, modern people, you know, for us in, in, in the age in which we live in, the idea of sacrifice is just very, very strange. Um, but for ancient people, sacrifice was a part of everyday life. And for God's people in the Old Testament, certainly it was, it was a, a way of their life. It was sort of how they lived their lives. It was normal for them. Um, but at the very center of biblical faith, we talked about sort of the bloody death of Jesus, and it was, a, it was violent, it was bloody. Um, but the question is why? We've, we asked that question last week, why? And we discussed last week the story of Abraham and Isaac and how God um, revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh, God who provides, and God provided this sacrifice to Abraham in place of his son Isaac. And we also talked about last week how Jesus, he was and he is our substitute. He's our sacrifice and he did that once and for all. So this week we're gonna look at another Old Testament story and it's the story of the Passover and we're getting close to Passover season because it's right around the time of, of Easter. Um, and we're gonna be talking about the Passover lamb. And Exodus is the book that, you know, where we really get to learn how the Passover was instituted. And, and I love Exodus, just the word itself, um, because there's so much meaning in that. I mean, you probably could just take that word, and Pastor Mike probably could preach a whole sermon on just the word Exodus um, and with, you know, in and of itself. But it really essentially is Israel's departure or exit from Egypt. And God was sort of preparing this people to deliver them in a mighty, extraordinary way. Um, 
But X, just the word X, so Exodus are like exits us, and God is exiting Israel from from Egypt, which Egypt really represents like bondage, and it represented sin, and um, and God was just going to deliver His people out of that, um, the same way He delivered us. You know, we we all can say that we were we've exited from something, or we're X something. You know, I'm an X X Y Z, or I'm an X this. So God's delivered us and he's, you know, freed us from the bondage of sin and death. Um, but in the Exodus, the story itself, sort of the Passover, you know, marked like the the 10th plague. So if you read before, if you read, you know, before um, the chapter that we're actually going to look at, but in chapter 11, you sort of read about sort of all these plagues, and it was even before chapter 11. So there are these all these plagues that God is going to and did um, sort of inflict on the Egyptians. And the 10th plague, which was the plague of death, um, it was the final plague, and it was the terrifying death of the firstborn. And, um, but God told Israel, his people, that he would pass over them because of the blood um, that would be painted on their doorsteps. So... When I started studying this initially, I um, really sort of got deep into the story itself of the Passover. But then I also um, was reminded, just God reminded me that if I'd looked at sort of the meal right before the Passover when Jesus, you know, was sort of telling the disciples, when the disciples asked him, you know, where are you going to eat the Passover? And, um, you know, the story in Matthew is that, you know, there was a place that was going to be prepared. And before they were actually eating the Passover meal, Jesus sort of instituted this Last Supper. And so I, I noticed some parallels between the Old Testament story of the Passover and the New Testament story. And I saw some, some similarities that I just wanted to quickly point out. So in Exodus 12, 1 through 13, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. Um, but the scripture says that while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, God gave these specific instructions to Moses and Aaron and that they were going to um, have to do something, basically. And that was to choose a lamb or a goat and sort of sacrifice it. They had to, you know, perform this sacrifice. And the, the lamb had to be like a specific lamb. He had to be a year old. He couldn't have any defects. He had to be just absolutely perfect. And then they had to bring it into their house and live with it for some days, like love it. I mean, you basically just got attached to this animal before you had to sacrifice it. But then they had to slaughter it at night. So that night, they, after they lived with it for these days, they had to kill it. And then they had to take the blood and paint the blood on the doorposts where they were staying. And after they took the blood, then they also had to eat the lamb. And so the blood on the doorpost was to serve as the sign. It was the sort of mark the houses where they were staying. But because this death was going to pass through the land, God essentially was saying, because I see the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, I'm going to pass over you. Your death would pass over you when I see the blood. So interestingly enough, I was, I went to the New Testament and looked at Jesus, when he was with the disciples and they were eating the, the Last Supper, as it's called, um, so Jesus, you know, instructed the disciples to go into, the, go into a city, see this man, and um, tell him that we're going to have the Passover at his house, and so they, you know, go into this house, and when, and when evening came, so here is another evening, so in the 
in the Exodus story, they have to you know, sacrifice this lamb at night. Well, this, in this story of Jesus and the Last Supper, it's also at night, and he's with the 12, and um, as they were eating this meal, Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, he gave it to the disciples and says, take, eat. And we, Pastor Mike you know, walks us through this every Sunday when we have communion, but it's essentially the same thing. It's, he's saying, this is, this is my body, so here I'm the lamb, and we're going to explore this a little bit more when Linda comes up to read it, but he says, take this bread, it's my body, eat it. And then he gives him the cup and says, drink, this is my blood. Okay, so what does lamb's blood reveal about the character and the purpose and plan of God? Like, why a lamb? What is so significant about a lamb? And recall when we, in the first week, we talked about Cain and Abel and, um, the, you know, the, the differences in their two sacrifices. And then, you know, Abel brings the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. But then we also read in scripture that Jesus is also described as this lamb of God, like he's the firstborn over all creation. And Revelation also says he's the firstborn over the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. So there's significance in that. And there's also a revelation that John got about Jesus in John 129. It says Jesus saw, John saw Jesus coming toward him and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's a significant character, this lamb, figurative of Jesus himself. I'm going to invite Miss Linda to come on up and join me and have a seat here. And she's going to read Revelation chapter 7, 13 through 17, and take us away. Thank you. I was just mesmerized listening to you. Um, as I was preparing today, I always like to talk about the context of the text, right? I always like to kind of set the scene, what we're going to be talking about. And I have to con confess that throughout most of my, my younger life, I have avoided the book of Revelation. It's crazy. It's got all these images, and it didn't make sense to me. And it actually was kind of scary. So I kind of stayed away from it. And... Um, and it didn't, it didn't read like the rest of the New Testament, okay? And, and um, what I've learned since that time um, is that the book of Revelation is really about um, uh, the um, vision and all of the um, illusions, the um, examples of different uh, things that related to um, revealing Jesus. The book, the revelation reveals Jesus. And so um, that's why when we read it, it doesn't quite read the same way. It's not a narrative, but it's John, the Apostle John. He's on the island of Patmos. Patmos is a Greek island. It's still called Patmos, as a matter of fact. Um, at that time, it was um, off the coast of Asia Minor. And he's writing this letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. And um, one of the most fascinating things about it is the more you read and understand the Old Testament about Christ, the, the more revelation makes sense. So, so it was written around, there's some con controversy whether it was like around 65 um, AD after uh, Christ was resurrected back to heaven or um, around 95. But the bottom line is what was going on for believers during that period of time. 
what happened to followers of Christ after Christ um, was resurrected. They were persecuted. Things were not pretty. And they went through some really bad times. And they were, you know, they were murdered or they were segregated or they were bad mouthed. They were couldn't participate in other things in, in, in culture. And so um, John is writing this to encourage the people that are going through this awful stuff. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, he's writing it to encourage us too because we're looking around us and seeing this stuff in our culture. You know, we were talking about Game of Thrones in our in our group talk here and, and how there's there's some corollaries to some of the things that were done that we read about in the Old Testament, things that we're doing that our culture does today. And um, Clay and I went on Friday night to go see the movie Unplanned. I don't know if anybody else has seen Unplanned yet. Um, strongly, strongly recommend that you go see it. Um, it's not pretty. It's not necessarily comfortable, but it's something that we need to experience as believers. Um, just in a nutshell, it's a story of a, of a woman who had been a director of a Planned Parenthood clinic and, um, and how she moved from that to, um, su to supporting women who are going through crisis pregnancy. So, um, but, but it's very, um, it ex it's a, an example of what's going on in our culture. And, um, you know, it, it grieves my heart when I see the number of babies that are, um, are not allowed to be birthed in our culture. And we were talking about how horrifying it is in Game of Thrones when they sacrifice children, right? Guess what? They is us. Okay? So, on that note, a word of encouragement, because there's more to it than this. And Jesus sees our heart and he knows that we grieve when these hard things are going on. So Revelation chapter 7 and verses 13 to 17, and I'm reading from the NIV version. It says, Then one of the elders asked me, asked John, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? And I, John, answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you. Thanks for reading that, Miss um, Linda. So I think, you know, going back to that question is, you know, what does this figure of this lamb represent, and, and how does it reveal the character and the purpose and the plan of God? And I think one of the things that I recognize and when we read the book of Revelation is that Revelation is actually very much tied to the very beginning because we get to see sort of the beginning and the end together because you know even during our um, our series uh, Explore God we ask the question is the Bible reliable well absolutely because scripture confirms itself so when we read in Revelation um, in the chapter that you read, and also in Revelation 13, 8, 
it talks about this lamb being slain from the foundation of the world. And so if we look at the Old Testament story of the Passover with the sacrificial lamb or the slaying of the lamb and the shed blood and the blood on the doorpost, but then we also go into the New Testament and we look at you know, Jesus and the Last Supper and he's you know, giving the bread to represent his body and the drinking of the wine to represent his shed blood. And then we're reading uh, in the chapter you read, this lamb at the center of our worship and this lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. We really get to get a full picture of who this figure is and what the purpose is and what the ultimate plan is. And we see God sacrificing himself, Jesus, God with us, and you know he submitted his body and his blood and he took our place as our substitute we talked about that last week and so we have this eternal life because of that we don't have you know we don't have to you know succumb to death or a spiritual death but death passes us over and we can have eternal life because Jesus essentially becomes like the scapegoat and so Pastor Mike's going to join that conversation and, and lead us more into, into that discussion. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Um, can we just give God a round of applause for the word he's already spoken and the comments that, uh, that we will have on the backside of those, which is awesome. I love being ministered to in this way uh, with multiple voices speaking. Uh, if we've never met before, my name is Mike or Pastor Mike, if you're all business like that. Um, and I get to just add a few words into what's been said this morning, particularly just want to go and add a couple of thoughts onto the idea of the Passover being Israel stuck in Egypt. If you look at the map up on the screen of the Middle East, you can see that Israel and Egypt are two different places, right? So when the Passover occurred, when God sent his angel of death to take the firstborn of the whole region, he sent that angel to take the firstborn of the whole region. And that was people who were in Egypt because they were Egyptians. And it was also people who were in Egypt because they were captives in Egypt, namely the people of God or the Israelites. But you can see that there are two different places on the map, right? In this particular time in history, Israel was there and was captive. Uh, and prophecy had said that they were going to be there for 400 years. The story picks up for us at the end of that 400 years where, as V taught us earlier, the exodus occurred or they exited out of Egypt. But what was happening in Egypt is they were held there as slaves, which meant they worked for the purposes of the Egyptians, namely the Pharaoh, for free. So they did backbreaking work every single day and how much were they compensated? Nothing. If anything, they were compensated by being able to keep their lives. And that's the way slavery works. You basically just get by by the skin of your teeth. There's nothing you can gain or earn by being a slave. You're just simply dragging along just by the skin of your teeth, just by what's left of you every single day. And this was the case of the Israelites. So when God came along and did those plagues, closing out with the 10th plague where the firstborn was taken, that firstborn idea, the idea of the firstborn being um, being taken by the angel of death, that applied to both Egyptians and to Israelites. But the Israelites were given a way to escape that death. 
by taking the blood of the lamb. And they took the blood of the lamb, and as V shared earlier, they put it on the doorpost, and as the angel of death came around and, uh, and saw the blood of the sacrifice on their doorpost, then how many people inside the house were saved? All of them. The blood of the lamb covered the entire family. In much the way, the blood of the lamb covers the entire family of a Christian family who raises their children in the faith, who baptizes their children in the faith, and teaches their children the faith from birth all the way up until they become adults. Faith in God has an effect that covers the entire family if the entire family is participating in it. The blood of our lamb, Jesus, is applied to the door frames of our lives. And in fact, the door frames of our hearts. Now, take a look at what the scripture says in Exodus 12. This is just adds on a little bit of the backstory. On that same night, God says, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods, little g, of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and where I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And in fact, history records and the scriptures record that this really happened in Egypt. The firstborn of people and animals all throughout Egypt uh, were sacrificed on that night. And when the angel of death came and saw the blood on the doorpost and passed over those households of the Israelites, the angel of death's work continued on down the street with anyone that didn't have the blood on the doorframe, but passed over the houses of the Israelites. I think, and, and this is not, you know, this is nothing but my, my thought on the subject. I think that our world is still captivated by the idea of the angel of death. In fact, as you look at the screen there, you see uh, this beautiful headstone uh, for a, a businessman named Hasero, who had a sculpture made uh, at his impending death of the angel of death. And if you're listening by podcast, what you're seeing is a bronze sculpture of a rather beautiful angel with long hair, and some believe, by the way, this is a male angel, and some believe it's a female. We can't really tell. But what you see the angel holding is not a sword, which is what we're used to seeing in stories of angels, but you see a torch that's inverted. The torch is actually stuck in the ground to symbolize what? The light of life being extinguished. So the symbol of the angel of death is one of sadness. And in fact, if you zoom in and take a look at the image a little closer, you can see how the elements have caused almost this effect of the bronze angel to cry. And that's why this particular sculpture has worldwide appeal. You can look it up on the internet, Angel of Death, and find this on Google. But what it's doing is, is it's showing the idea of the angel of death crying these tears as the elements interact with the bronze in the atmosphere. Now, is this a miracle? I don't think it's a miracle. I don't think the angel is crying. I think that the way the sculpture is set up, the elements are just simply interacting with the bronze. Now, that's scientifically reasonable, isn't it? But if you look at the symbolism of it, 
Look at the decay that's happening. Look at the triumph of the angel of death over Hazaro. Does this make you feel like you have hope for the future if you're Mr. Hazaro? I don't want a headstone like this. I don't want a headstone that has a big imposing angel that shows that it has snuffed out my life from now into eternity. In fact, I don't even want a headstone that says RIP on it. You know what RIP stands for? RIP this and RIP that. It stands in rest in, stands for rest in peace, right? But look at what the scripture says about our future in regards to the angel of death and our impending deaths and our impending headstones on our graves. It says, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So let me ask you a question. If the lamb that is at the center in that vision of John and Revelation is the same Passover lamb, now, granted, this lamb at the center of the altar has seven eyes and seven horns. That's another whole theological story, right? It's a weird-looking lamb, right? But it is the lamb of God who has been what? Slain. What does that mean? Killed. So conquered by the angel of death, as it were, right? But then the scripture says in Revelation that that lamb looked at it as if it had been slain. So it looked like it had been killed. But that's the same lamb that does what? Leads us to springs of living water and furthermore, wipes away every tear from their eyes. So there's a tension going on here. There's a conundrum. You've got a lamb who's been killed, who's been conquered by the angel of death, right? Who the angel of death has said, your torch was lit, dude, but I'm going to invert it and slam it into the ground and sit upon it in total victory. But then, three days later, history records what happened to the slain lamb of God. He came back to life. So we have a lamb of God who is both slain and alive. He is both dead and alive. His death took care of the blood that was needed as a sacrifice for our sins, both the sins that we were conceived and born into, and also the sins that we do, the stuff that's wrong that we do against God's word, right? That sacrifice of that lamb did not cost the lamb his eternity. The sacrifice of the lamb was incidental to God doing what was required to earn your love and mine. So we have this really weird image of something that is both dead and alive. But what that means for you and me is that we don't, when we die, we don't rest in peace. When we die, we don't stop. When we die, we don't lay in a grave like Mr. Hazro with the angel of death sitting on top of us claiming victory over our lives. When we die, we immediately go to work. And the work we do is a great pleasure. Revelation also reveals that when we go to work, what it is we're doing is worshiping God 24-7. In fact, it's so awesome, there's no more 24 and there's no more seven. We are simply God's people loving him 
in song, in speech, and in our presence all the time. And in fact, the work we do up here musically is just a shadow of what we're going to get to do is our work in eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that doesn't sound like resting in peace, in finality, conquered by the angel of death. Does it sound like that to you? No, I don't think so. To me, it sounds like an amazing party, a celebration where we rest in peace for just a moment as those eyes close, but then when they open again, the next moment, we are in the presence of God. And as we stand in his presence and sing and speak love out to him, we are showered with how powerful and amazing and majestic he is. And the best part of all, and maybe Mr. Hazro missed this, I just don't know. The best part of all is there's absolutely no way that we can earn our way into victory over the angel of death. No Israelite stood outside his doorframe on the night of the Exodus and said, Angel of death, I defy you. I'm going to exercise, I'm going to eat right, and I'm going to be the model of perfect health and live to age 100. I'm going to conquer you. No Israelite did that. What did the Israelites do? They killed a lamb. They drained its blood to show evidence that it had died for their sins and then put that evidence out for the public. And part of that public was the angel of death. When the angel of death came through, the angel of death didn't stop at the household and say, how good were the people in this household? The angel of death simply came and saw the blood of the lamb and recognized the sacrifice that had been made for the people in that home. And then what did he do? He passed right on by. The same holds true for you and for me. The idea becomes this. The idea that when God teaches us and shows us the power of the Easter story of Resurrection Day, he changes our hearts toward him. He changes the way we think about God. We no longer think about God as the great judge who sends the angel of death to punish me. We now think about God who catches me at the moment of my death and prepares me for the great resurrection to come. And while that time passes between the time of my death and the time of my bodily resurrection, I get to go to work praising him, worshiping him, living in his power around his throne, I get to see him, hear him, and experience him face to face. That changes the way I look at God and the way I feel about God, the way I think about God. It teaches me the idea that God surrounds and protects me with his love, just like he surrounded and protected those families of the Israelites by putting that blood on the doorpost and on the doorframe. And it teaches me the concept of redemption, that even though my body will die someday, God intends to redeem me. Now, redeem is a churchy word, unless you're really good at coupons. What is a coupon? A coupon is where you can redeem the coupon for what? 
some value. Maybe you buy one can of beans and you get a second can of beans for free. You redeem something of value, which means you buy it back. That's what redemption is in the kingdom of God. By sacrificing the Lamb of God, God was buying back the souls of the Israelites in the same way through the Messiah, Jesus. God is buying back your soul and mine from the angel of death so that we never have to experience his triumph. We only experience what? The triumph of the lamb who was slain and then resurrected. Think about that. Think about what that means for you in your life. Are you worthy of being redeemed by the Lamb of God? Ask yourself that question. Let me answer it for you. Yes, you are. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not good enough for that. I've not earned my place in God's presence. You are correct, and you can't earn your place in God's presence. There's only one who can, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who earns your place, redeems your place in God's presence. And what God calls us to do and be are a people who believe in that promise. The Bible says the work of God. We talked about going to work when we close our eyes for the last time, right? The Bible says the work of God is this, not to do a bunch of stuff to earn God's love. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. When we trust and believe in that slain lamb's sacrifice and his resurrection, guess what? That is the future to which we look forward someday. And in fact, we don't have to wait for that future. One of the great reasons we celebrate communion, uh, as V shared with us earlier, one of the great reasons we celebrate communion every week here at Trinity, unless, like this weekend, we're celebrating baptisms. One of the great reasons we do is because God takes ordinary elements like bread and wine, and he not only reminds us that he is the sacrificed lamb of God, who rose again from the dead, but he strengthens us to the task of believing in him how many days of our life? Every day, not just on Sunday. When we trust in him and receive what he has to give to us, which is his very flesh and blood, which we receive mysteriously through the bread and wine, then what it is happening in that moment is a redemption again. You are redeemed from the angel of death and claimed by God as his own. That's also what happens in baptism, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But what we want you to hear and take away from today and live in and share with everyone you know is that you are worthy of the sacrifice of the lamb. That's right. You, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, 
no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, no matter who you've hurt, no matter who you've been involved in hurting other people with, you are worthy of the sacrifice of the Lamb. Yes, you. And that sacrifice comes to you by one simple means, faith, trusting that there is a Jesus, that he did go to the cross, that he did die there, that he did rise from the grave three days later, that he did ascend into heaven, and that this very day the slain Lamb of God with holes in his wrists and feet prays for you intercedes for you with God his Father and our Father, reclaims you, redeems you every single day. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. And every time we celebrate Resurrection Day every year, the reason we do that regularly is because sometimes we forget whose we are. That day, that special day, reminds us we are redeemed. What does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean? It means to be bought back from the angel of death. So don't put a big bronze statue of the angel of death on your tombstone. In fact, when I die, and I want you guys to be my witnesses, I would like to be put in a potato sack and buried in the side of a hill someplace beautiful. Because one day, that old dead body is going to rise again. When it does, it will be because of the actions of one, the slain lamb of God, and his power over the angel of death.